Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Wicked Problems, a show about climate tech. The intersection of capital and technology, people and politics that will determine the future shape of the world and whether you'd want to live in it. I'm Richard Dillon. I now call the Chancellor to make the autumn statement. Jermel. For our advanced manufacturing and green energy sectors, international investors say the biggest thing we could do is to announce a longer-term strategy for their industries. We'll make available £4.5 billion of support over the five years to 2030 to attract investment into strategic manufacturing sectors. That includes support of £2 billion for zero emission investments in the automotive sector. We'll also provide £960 million for the new Green Industries Growth Accelerator focused on offshore wind, electricity networks, nuclear, CCUS and hydrogen. This support will attract an estimated £2 billion of additional investment every year over the next decade. That was the UK government's head finance minister, Jeremy Hunt. Sorry that I sound like I'm auditioning for the new noise of the TARDIS, but my flu's been around longer than David Tennant. We'll be back as the 14th Doctor Who. This episode is still very much focused on the UK, where the government getting ready for an election soon, and still working out whether it's for or against investing in climate solutions, announced that it would be putting not a small amount of money to work, £4.5 billion. Used to sound like a lot, anyway, until you stack it up against the $370 billion allocated under the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. But on this latest U.K. bit of climate policy drama, we wanted to get an expert to help us work out the headlines while we wait for the fine print. And we're really excited to make sense of all this is with us Charlie Mercer from the Startup Coalition. Charlie, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you, Richard. Thanks for having me. So, Charlie, every week's a busy week for you guys. It's either a cabinet reshuffle or it's a new policy coming in. And we're hoping you can help us decode some of what we've seen from the Chancellor of the Exchequer here in the UK with his autumn statement, which purported to have lots of big news that's relevant for climate tech and startups in general. So hit us with the headline here, Charlie. What was What's the big news out of yesterday's statement? So the big news that's making all the headlines is obviously his, his national insurance cuts. 
but probably of more interest and to, to dive straight into what it means for the folks listening to this for, because of the wonderful content that Wicked Problems puts out. There is some good stuff in there for startups and innovators. And it all comes with one big disclaimer that's been keeping us very busy over the last few weeks, and that is the R&D tax credits regime, which I will come on to. But as a few headlines, there were some long-awaited detail to announcements made earlier in the year. So, for example, the Mansion House Compact, which is the government's big plan to consolidate and uh, open up the pensions market to invest in patient capital, so infrastructure projects and startups. This has previously been held back by some regulatory and cultural barriers, and we've really seen a concerted effort from government over the last 12 months to, to move this in a really positive direction. So we were waiting for some detail. The detail has come. There is going to be a new uh, British Business Bank fund. Uh, there is going to be a new initiative to, to train investors, and there's going to be a pension summit over the next few months. There is also a VC compact that was announced mm. In the days preceding the autumn statement that basically marries up the VC community with what the pensions community have promised to do. So that's a good step in terms of the pensions money. So let's let's drill into that for a second. So in terms of pensions, obviously the risk profile for that as an investment vehicle tends to be you know, less interested in the kind of VC type returns. They're more interested in like traditionally dividends or something that can be almost bond level of security when it comes to the kind of investment, but something with the pensions would be also having a little bit of diversity in wanting to get a little bit more of a return. So why is that important in terms of patient capital for this sector? Yeah, to use the phrase that you talked about there, it's because conventional VC fundraising models are not necessarily the best for the sorts of climate innovation we need. We're talking hardware, we're talking deep tech, we're talking basically more than 10-year returns. And fundamentally, that means that there is a real burning need across every climate tech sector for cash that is happy to hang about. And pensions investments are an example of that, right? For many folks in the UK, the pension is the, the largest asset they'll ever have, and it's deployed into often opaque and fairly generic places and the two things I mentioned is that in the preamble are quite critical here as to why action is required. So one is this cultural issue, right? And that's because because of what the pension represents, it's a long-term investment. And because of, to be honest, the a, a culture that, that exists in the UK, investors are not as likely to chase risk riskier assets, right? And that, that's partly because of the, the nature of the product, but it's also because it's just the culture of the UK versus other places, right? So the US is almost the other extreme where we have a much more ambitious and, and, and risk-taking culture. But uh, Canada, for example, they have uh, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan is, is one of the major investors in many startups in the UK. Um, so it can be done from a cultural perspective, and that's something that the, the, the government's looking to do from a convening point of view. But also in the UK right now, there are regulatory barriers to doing this, right? And that's because right. of um, the charge cap. That means that oftentimes the fund, uh, the VC charges the VC fund charges are just too much for the pensions to afford, right? So they're looking to to examine that and work out ways that they they can potentially uh, creatively accommodate those charges. Um, but it starts with, as I say, these com- these, these right. convening, these compacts, this summit, and also this new growth fund that, that, that they're looking into. And that un- potentially unlocks a huge pool of capital that previously had been un- unable to be tapped. Indeed. I think critically, we should say it doesn't unlock the whole lot, right? And that is because- right. 
it would be irresponsible for sure. everyone to be putting their pensions capital into, into these riskier assets, right? And we know and love the climate tech sector, you and I, which is who we spend our time chatting to all the time. This is a diversification opportunity, right? So this is right. one asset among many. And fundamentally, it should also be uh, consent driven. So we're talking about giving invest- investors in the form of pension holders the choice to do this, where previously mm. they haven't been able to do so, right? And I think right. from our perspective in the past, we've looked at reports that talk about uh, a 5% shift in pension funds under management could be 50 billion pounds, right? It's huge amounts of cash. So it may not be that much. It could just be a slither of that. But fundamentally, the nature of pension investments really matches up with some of the the, the needed cash, particularly at a later stage, right? The valley of death funding, you know, funding that is happy to hang about. That's crucially Mm. what we're after here. Right. And this does in some ways reflect this government's approach towards trying to leverage more private capital to be able to get involved in different sectors, this being one of them. Jeremy Hunt back in March said, said that he wasn't going to compete pound for pound you know, with the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act or the European uh, Green Infrastructure Bill. So this seems to be true to that. Would that be about right? I think it's fair to say um, the other piece, obviously, is that it's just a case of re- 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 like recognizing that this asset class is just a lucrative class, right? So if you are wanting to diversify your pension fund and you actually want to make a return, this is a good mm. thing to do. So yes, there's the patient side and it's absolutely a case of them saying, we're not going to you know, invest in climate techs in this way. But there is a sector agnostic perspective that actually, if you wanted to and you felt you, the, the risk appetite was right, you would want to invest in startups of any kind. And now mm. this is the thing is that this, this, this pension movement is not just going to be climate innovation. It is the concepts of startups right. and the increasing the equitable distribution of tech growth, which is something that previously hasn't been the case. It's often very specific individuals in societies that benefit from these firms, right. you know, going to the moon. Um, and also... It does appear there has been some actual like public money put on the table as well, correct? It is correct. 960 million pounds set aside. And what's that for? So that, the 960 million is for a green industries growth accelerator, which we think is new money, but it, and it's part of this 4.5 billion pounds that was announced that is going to go into EVs, into aerospace, into batteries. The 960 is particularly exciting because this is, we think, new money that's going to be uh, spent from 2025 onwards, right? So this is post-election. We've got to bear that in mind. So Jam tomorrow. Indeed. Um, and that's for, you know, sectors like carbon capture, like grid, like energy production. So this is really exciting cash that could be going into those sectors that are hardware intensive, that need the cash uh, to make things. And this is where, again, going back to it, the VC model isn't necessarily the most appropriate, right? Or there are, mm. there are a few VCs who are happy to hang about for long enough to do this. This sort of cash is really needed to pool funding, to, to, to kind of bring the market with them. And we think it's really positive. Um I think it's critical to say we are still waiting for the details of this, right? So there's the timing side and then there's actually where is this cash coming from and how easy will it be for firms to access? Is it going to be going towards some of the more mature, big incumbents who are developing really Mm. needed technology or is it going to be channeling towards the innovative, smaller companies who are uh, more precarious? Right. I mean, it's the I think the quote that in one of the documents, either from this week or from the 17th of November, says that it's designed to support the expansion of strong, homegrown, clean energy supply chains. And yeah. so it talks about CCUS, electricity networks, hydrogen, nuclear and offshore wind, which, of course, is a covers quite a lot of sins. Um, but uh, in, in the sense that I would suppose that people talking about like, OK, well, does that mean we're putting more money into, uh, you know, a, 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 a into EDF essentially to help uh, finish a nuclear plant somewhere near Bristol or indeed in offshore wind where we've got other things coming in. So I don't see there being a huge amount of appetite to replicate 
you know, building turbines onshore here in the UK, for example, for the wind industry. So yeah, I guess it's kind of watch this space to see where that money actually winds up being manifest. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And we, yeah, we do know there's going to be an election next year, right? So um, the funding won't be deployed uh, until the year after, but I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's very likely, right? This will form a big part of that part of the manifesto. This has been now articulated and it may well be more, more elaborated and defined. um, But ultimately we now kind of know what the Tory pitch is going to be on this front. And it's almost looking to preempt the fact that the Labour Party, we know are going to be talking a lot, a lot about this. Right. And the Labour Party, I mean, they seem to have kind of muddled themselves in terms of the, the clarity of the communications on this. But at, at, at one point, um, they had said that they were going to be putting, you know, put a, a figure of 28 billion towards, uh, you know, kind of investments and in infrastructure required for net zero, including uh, clean tech, climate tech, etc. So, you know, I'm to be honest with you, Charlie, I've actually lost count now about uh, where uh, Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves are on that, uh, whether Ed Miliband is in the driving seat of deciding whether or not that's going to be policy, et cetera. Any, any updates on that? Because again, I, I've kind of lost count. Yeah, so where they're at, and, and actually to give them, to give them some credit, it, this, is, this is something they're, they're clearer on, um, particularly relative to other portfolio areas that are an earlier stage of development. Um, the £28 billion figure is now a target as opposed to a commitment, right? So it's something mm. that they will aim towards if they are elected next year. So th- that is still a big chunk of cash. But I think to your point, we don't know what that £28 billion will cover. And you're absolutely right. If it's going to go towards incumbents that are developing stuff that's already in train, then very quickly, particularly if you're including things like nuclear, this, these funds will very quickly get gobbled up um, mm. because that is very expensive. It's all very necessary. So to some degree, we can't complain, right? This is going to cost a lot of money. Mm. And ultimately, climate techs require the wholesale transformation of the economy to really thrive. So that's important to note. But one thing that we, particularly the Startup Coalition, would be keen to understand as we head towards that, that key date next year, whenever mm. it might be, is what that fund will mean for climate tax, right? So of £28 billion, how much can we reasonably expect to be going in towards the earlier stage innovation? How much will be going in towards those later stage firms that are experiencing the value of death? Mm-hmm. How much is going to be going towards the energy grid? Because that is one of their five missions. The mm-hmm. the switching on GB energy is, is one of their five missions. So we know that's going to be an area of focus. And as a consequence, is it the case that of that £28 billion, the innovative funding is going to go into the energy sector or right. is there scope for it to go to other sectors too? Right. And of course, you say this stage of development, but I mean, one of the things observers were looking at was how much the chancellor would put into this autumn statement in order to signal whether or not he was keeping dry powder for the spring. And the fact that he, there was so much in this autumn statement suggests to some observers that an election might be sooner rather than later in the sense that Labour might not have as much time as they thought going into this week in terms of firming up some of those policies. So I suppose we'll watch that space. Um, but coming back to R&D tax credits, it's something yes. that I know that, I mean, everyone from Chris Stark to Martin Lewis to various other commentators and, and Carbon Brief has a great roundup this morning, as well as the statement that your good selves have put out. Um, but help us understand what you were aiming for as an organization in R&D tax credits, why it matters and where we wound up. Yeah, for sure. So, so R&D tax credits are a foundational policy that has powered the UK tech startup scene right over um, the last decades, decades, actually, it's been around for a while. Um, it's, it's ebbed and flowed. There's been different formations of the scheme, but um, but ultimately it is a it is a must-tap, right? This isn't a nice-tap policy. Um, so we have been working with a number of startups over the last 12 to 18 months, ever since the UK government, then under 
Liz Truss signaled that they were going to tack. I know, remember her. I, was, um, I remember the name's familiar, but I'm just yeah. I'm having trouble placing the face. But go ahead. Um, so she tacked on R&D tax credits. And for, for years, it was kind of loved by, by, um, by, by Rishi as chancellor, by Boris as, as prime minister. And it actually was expanding in its remit, its eligible, um, the things you could, you could apply for and the, the generosity. However, under Liz Trust, there was a tack um, in the autumn of last year that, that was responding to growing concerns of, about fraud and error on the scheme. Um, now, crucially, it is the case that this scheme, as it has grown, has experienced more fraud and error. Crucially, we would we really would double down that it's error as opposed to fraud, right? There are very few instances of fraud on the R&D tax credit scheme that have been proven. But there is an awful lot of error. And that drove and that was then whipped up in the press as a concern about taxpayer money and efficiency. And that's, you know, to be honest, well placed, and we should be making sure the taxpayer money is spent well. Now, crucially, it then led to a classic baby out with the bathwater um, risk from, from our perspective, right, where by looking to cut down generosity of the scheme, merge the scheme, simplify the scheme, um, there was a concern that the genuine R&D, the folks, the folks that we work with all the time, would be left out in left out in the cold, and the proposals coming into this this budget would, would see a cut to all um, small businesses as part as part of the merging of the scheme, and also would see this enhanced credit, which was a, a more generous part of the scheme, really confined to a very small selection of firms, so firms that only spent forty percent of their total spend on R and D. So, a an R and D intensity that, to be honest, is only experienced in the very kind of deep, deep science, life sciences space. So we worked tirelessly gaining evidence from founders. We did a survey uh, earlier in the year that talked about the potential average cut being £100,000 per tax receipt to to startups, which is a huge amount of money. Data that showed that there were concerns about if, if the changes went through, folks would flee, they wouldn't be able to afford to pay their staff, and their growth would be impacted. And then we worked with government to, you know, to, to, to plead the case and you know, acknowledge the reality within there, which, which they're were, they were operating, including, including the fiscal restraints, but fundamentally saying, look, guys, if, you know, through these changes, there's a risk here that you're just going to you know, sweep a whole bunch of innovative firms away and they will go elsewhere, right? They will pivot their, and we heard stories of folks who have taken their, their footprint and put it in Europe, put it in the US already. Fortunately, um, yesterday they listened and that 40% was lower to 30%, right? Which is, by their estimate, an additional 5,000 small businesses. So that is a success because the scheme is better today than it was yesterday. However, we cannot shy away from the fact that it is still less generous than mm. it was a year ago. And there will likely be an impact to the startup community going forward. And we, we will obviously be paying very close attention and keeping our ears to the ground, speaking with founders, because as we look towards next year, as we look towards each party kind of building their case for, for how they would help innovative firms start up and scale up, we think there's potentially opportunity here for, on both sides to talk about what that future might look like mm. after the election. So another aspect that uh, Chris Stark actually had highlighted yesterday in, from the Climate Change Committee was the expensing of capital allowances. Yeah. So enabling that companies that were trying to decarbonize and put solar panels and heat pumps in, for example, and other kind of green tech. So if you're a startup with actual kit in market, this might be good news because it allows for companies to put more of that CapEx uh, and have a tax benefit on that straight away, right? I think you're right to say the other side of it is the market, right? Yeah. This will build that market for um, the technologies that startups are developing, and that's only a good thing. Um, I'd say the capital allowances 
generally across the broad board, um, capital allowances matter less to startups than things like R&D tax credits that are much more immediately applicable and they can basically get get that that cash in. Um, final remark on on our on the R&D tax credits, however, is that the other issue that we did um, hear loud and clear is that the HMRC mm. are butchering the scheme. Um, so it doesn't matter how generous, how well-designed right. the scheme is, if you don't have the public service implementing it mm. and administering it effectively, then it doesn't matter, right? So we still have an awful lot of work to do and we will be you know, going back to Treasury and having those conversations right. even after the autumn statement to ensure that this credit is truly working with startups. God, where's Dominic Cummings when you need him? Walking around the halls with a with a baseball bat taking care of this stuff, you know? Well, Sometimes you need someone like that. Just don't know about that. That just wasn't saying. one of our recommendations. Just saying. Just, you yeah. should, wait, I, I'm telling you, you should work on that. Anyway, um, well, look, Charlie, I mean, this has been super helpful. What are the other key things we should know about this before we let you go? I think um, one final thing to, to flag is is something that was a little bit buried, and this is smart data, right? So um, smart data, uh, for, for those unaware, is the application of open banking. So the increased real-time portability of consumer and business data with the consent of the person whose, whose data it is mm. uh, to port. So you know, share, but for a defined purpose in real time. And smart data is something the government's been talking about for a long time. It's the provisions um, are being set out in the data bill, which is going through right now. I sit on the government smart data council, which is the industry group that's helping to design the strategy of deploying it. Um, and after a period of relative kind of you know, scene setting and working out what they want to do next, they announced yesterday in the autumn statement they want a big bang. And this big bang will take the form of multiple sectors that they're going to deploy smart data in. And one of those is energy. So, um, you know, I think an easy way to think about this, and this isn't um, government policy, nor is it necessarily our policy, right? But where you have structured data, such as smart meter data, that is data that currently often sits in silos. Um, it's often quite expensive and technically complicated to join up to access, even if a consumer or a business is consenting for that to happen. Um, it often requires credential sharing and often requires expensive tech behind the scenes. So the concept of then saying, right, through standardized APIs, we're going to unlock that data with the consent of the consumer mm. could be huge, right? And in open banking, we've seen also, you've seen over 7 million people use it in the financial services sector. We've seen um, startups worth £4 billion. Our research earlier this year said that after this is regulation that was introduced and 92% of the funding raised by these firms that we deem the open banking sector were raised mm. after regulations, a pro-competition regulation intervention, and they're now worth £4 billion, right? right? So that is just a very small section of data in the financial realm. If you do this in energy, if you do this across right. the economy, not only is it powerful for you know the innovation and opportunity there, but things, complicated use cases like carbon mm. accounting, right? Become exponentially easier, or, or think, or indeed things like demand management, virtual power oh, plants. So, the, yeah, so it's, it, it joins up. You know, the half-hour um, settlement joins that up with the smart meter rollout. Finally, with the consumer and informed consumer right. at the epicenter of that, smart data joins all these things up. Mm. Right, so done done well, uh, and leveraging things like Project Perseus, which is something again I'm involved with, which is doing it in the small business carbon accounting space. If you leverage some of the industry work that's already kind of paving the way. This could be really powerful indeed. Hmm. And where will that put us if the similar regimes in continental Europe or the States in terms of allowing this data portability, particularly on, on the energy sector from the, at the consumer level? It's very hot as a topic right now in the States. Yeah. Uh, VP, VPPs in particular, but you know, demand response in general that essentially if you could get people to shift when they charge an EV or when they 
they run you know certain electric appliances that could run at any time during the 24 hour period shifting it to a lower demand profile area so that you're not hitting that you know this peak of 5 to 8 p.m um a lot you know could save thousands per year um you know or hundreds per year for a consumer for a household um uh, but we're you know currently constrained from doing that for lots of reasons cultural technological and it seems regulatory is this going to help with that so yes um unquestionably i i can't speak for how um specifically with the energy sector we necessarily compare to the rest of the world but um you know the the smart data approach to this where you are basically giving consumers um, the rights to do this in real time. And, and it's done in a regulated way, right? Because this does happen already today. There are many startups that aren't waiting for regulation, but it does require credential sharing. It requires expensive um, you know, work behind the scenes. The smart data approach, we would be the first to do that. Australia had a go. They had their own consumer data, right? And energy was on their, their roadmap uh, for all sorts of complicated reasons. It didn't kind of fell a bit flat. Um, many places are starting with financial data because that's where, again, a lot of the value is unlocked. So if you can you can tell a lot from someone's bank, bank statement, obviously with their consent, crucially, always with their consent, but you can, in theory, give them an awful lot of um, advice about energy use just through the bank statement, but twinned with the real-time usage of energy and then tariff data. It's a game changer, right? So we would be world-leading right. um, if, if we do this. And, well, I mean, I you know, you could give the government a hard time. I certainly do, uh, this government, but uh, I think that, you know, that, that would be, if nothing else, a legacy that comes out of it. Like, it could spawn entire new you know, subsectors in the climate tech space, uh, you know, as startups in this country are able to take advantage of that. So that would be fantastic news. Great place to end it. Yes. Charlie, Charlie Mercer, friend of the show, our first return guest. Thanks I for coming it. back. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Charlie Mercer, Deputy Policy Director of the Startup Coalition. If he comes on Wicked Problems three more times, he can turn in his loyalty card for a free coffee. Thanks for listening. Tell us what you think. Leave a comment at news.wickedproblems.uk where you can also find our newsletter and more of that sweet, sweet content that Charlie was helping hype at the top of our interview. We'll be back Saturday with an exceptional conversation where Claire Brady and I speak to climate adaptation investor Ulrich Seitz on the prospects for a big shift in investment flows to that direction as we ease into COP28. You can get this and other episodes to your inbox by signing up at news.wickedproblems.uk You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others find the show. And maybe share it with somebody who's on the fence about moving their R&D out of the UK for greener pastures. Seriously, please stay. It will get better. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.